All right. I just want to do God's will. The kind of revolution that the world needs is a Christian revolution. If you want a miracle, you've got to expect it to happen. You are the recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and you rejoice in that reality. Welcome to Life Today Live. You know, as we here in the United States celebrate Independence Day and Fourth of July, I thought, you know, I want to bring a story to you that just makes you, you know, proud to be an American, proud to be a Christian more more than anything, but one that might bring you a little inspiration. And uh, a few months ago, I was listening to Glenn Beck radio program, and I, I heard this guy telling this story, and I was like, oh my gosh, I, that is wild. And I had come in, in the middle of it, and I was like, who, who is this? And then Glenn Beck said his name is Chad Robichaux, and I went, I know Chad. He's been on the program. I have to get him on Life Today live. Uh, and so we've got him today. I'm very glad he's here. And the story he was telling uh, was from a book that was upcoming at the time. It's out now. The book is called Saving Aziz. Looks just like this. Saving Aziz. And it has hit all the legitimate bestseller book lists because it is just one of those stories that you have to hear. So if you haven't heard it, Stick around. I'm glad you're here. You're going to hear it from the man himself. Chad, welcome to Life Today Live. Thanks for having me back on. All right. So for those who don't know anything about you, uh, tell us a little bit about your military background and what you know your role in the Marines and what is a force recon Marine. I don't know, don't know quite what that means, but it sounds cool. Give us a little bit of your resume, just if you don't mind. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I spent 14 years in special operations, uh, multi generation uh, in my family, military veteran, all the way back 84 years, World War II, Korea. My father was the first Marine in our family as infantrymen went to Vietnam. Uh, I was a Force Recon Marine. Uh, did eight deployments to Afghanistan. Both my sons were Marines. One went to Afghanistan as well. So big military history in our family. I went in at 17 years old. Uh, joined the Marine Corps uh, to be uh, with the goal of being a, a recon Marine. But um, I, I ended up uh, starting out. You have to, you can't go straight to recon. You go in infantry first. So I went to Marine Corps infantry, tried out uh, and, and uh, for what's called a state platoon, which is the surveillance target acquisition platoon, uh, which is the scout snipers in the Marine Corps. Went there for a few months, tried out for recon, made it in the Marine recon, uh, spent a few years in 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 a marine recon which is special operations in the marine corps and then uh and then i later went on the force recon which is the next tier up usually in, in marine recon marine recon is very small you have a you know you have about at any given time about 700 recon marines and of those you have 25 percent of those or or the more experienced guys they go into a force recon uh now a force recon platoon and the force recon uh unit just does has a little bit more capabilities uh is able to go a little bit further out and uh, work in small teams usually like six-man teams to do a long-range reconnaissance for the for the uh, uh marine corps divisions or you know the overall nato effort and we support uh recon is not part of special operations command but support special operations command missions and is part of and, and gets to participate in, in jsoc joint special operations command task force uh, and so that's what I did. Uh, and, uh, and, and after 9-11, I tried out for what's called the JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command Task Force, and was selected to go and be one of the four, one of six Force Recon Marines to go represent uh, what I believe to be the premier special operations team in the world, uh, one, uh, one of our J- tier one 
one of our two tier one JSOC uh, teams, and I won't say which one, but I went there uh, to represent the Marine Corps there, and I did eight deployments at that unit in that capacity. I served as what's called an AFO, Advanced Force Operator. And what that job is, is essentially working undercover in, in, uh, in combat environments, doing in a singleton capacity, meaning you're working by yourself with local nationals, and you go ahead of the unit uh, to build all the clandestine infrastructure to put assaulters on target to capture or kill bad guys. And so you go in what would be unpermissive areas, so areas where uh, our traditional military won't operate, but we have bad guys there, so we need to get assaulters in that area to go capture or kill bad guys. A AFO goes into the area and advance and builds all the logistics, contingencies, everything that could go right, everything could go wrong, plans it all out on the battlefield and gets those assaulters on target. And and that's what I did for all that's what I did for all eight of my deployments, uh, all in Afghanistan or across the border uh in into Pakistan. And uh in my in that job, my interpreter hang, hang on. But, but, my teammate. But, go but, ahead. But, yeah, but before we get to that, uh because yeah. uh, that's where we're going, but so there, you threw out a lot of a lot of terms that us civilians were trying our best to follow. Um, yeah. Get, of what you can talk about, because I'm guessing there's some things you cannot talk about. Of course, yeah. Um, there's a- <laughs> what what would a mission like that practically look like? Like, what have you actually done that you can tell us? Yeah. So, um, you know, when you say you can't talk about things, you can't. Obviously, I, I don't want to say the specific unit I worked at, uh, but also there's things called means and methods, how we do things, uh, and there's also called TTPs, uh, techniques, tactics, and procedures uh, of you know the the SOP, standard operating procedures that we do things. Uh, but in general, uh, you know, if our command had a bad guy and the command I was at was usually hunting the top ten bad guys on the Taliban okay. list, if there was one of those guys uh, that we were looking for, like number one or number two. Uh, I would, and the unit would be planning an operation and go get this person. Once they identified where they are, uh, then I would be in that area months, sometimes weeks, but sometimes months in advance to to be able to make sure the team could actually get on the target to get that guy. So I might be there uh, putting uh, local national vehicles in in place. Um, I mean, you can't just drive, you can't just rent a car and drive it on a target in the middle of a Batakut, Afghanistan. You have to have the right permits, the right license plates. You know, we, it's not like here where you can have a license plate in, in New Jersey and drive it into Texas. Uh, you have to have the, you know, you hit the checkpoint, you have to write all the right paperwork. And then when you have to be able to know uh, where to stage things and in contingencies, safe houses, you know, going in a safe house and building a safe house in advance, putting local national weapons, ammunition, uh, safe from a place that's defendable to fight out of, water, local clothes, blood, uh, what wow. every team member, what, what's the blood type of every team member? I need to have that on, on stage in the area, wow. uh, a local doctor that I could grab and, and pull in. Uh, all that stuff has to be done in advance Sorry. to make sure that mission uh, goes perfectly. But if it doesn't go perfectly, then all those contingencies are in place to make sure that team gets safely in, oh. is successful, and then anything bad happens, we get them safely out. Okay. And so someone goes there, you know, you watch these movies and you see the guys you know fat jump in jump in or fast rope in and they blow the door open and go in and kill all the bad guys well the part you don't see is someone's there way in advance setting all that up and uh i didn't even know this job existed Uh, very privileged to have the opportunity to do it and uh and it it is called it's called an afo advanced force operator uh in special operations you have let's aso which is advanced special operations that usually works with local nationals uh doing human intelligence and, and working local nationals for information 
but AFO, Advanced Force Operator, is usually ahead doing all the clandestine logistics to build the operation and set it up. Wow. And that's okay. what it did. Yeah, yeah. The, the movies make it look way easier. And, and yeah, <laughs> most, like, most of us, like that's all we actually know is what we see in movies. Okay, so Aziz. <laughs> what, what, Aziz. What, is, what is Aziz? Or who is Aziz? Yeah. Well, when you're working by yourself like that, you have to have a local national to be to be uh, successful. I mean, um, hmm. you know, I, I grew up in Louisiana. I live in live in Texas. Uh, running around Afghanistan without a local is is not possible to be successful in those missions. And you know, our military, particularly all our military, relies on interpreters and local national experience. But in special operations, you really rely on that expertise of that. Uh, and we get some of the best locals that are patriotic uh, to their country and the cause of freedom. They're sympathetic to the the cause of you know uh, Westernized freedom and 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 believe we vet them to make sure they believe in the mission, and then they have uh they're trainable to capabilities to work with the special operations. So Aziz was one of those guys started off with Third Special Forces Group, ended up working for the Anti-Terrorism Assistance Task Force and was recruited into JSOC to come work at my unit. Worked mm -hmm. at my unit for 15 years, uh, on my eight deployments he was my interpreter for all eight deployments which isn't normal in military. Normally you get a different interpreter every time you have one interpreter for a big unit, but because of my job and have the continuity, uh, he was my interpreter and, uh, we highly trained to be able to work, uh, with me. Um, so he was not only my interpreter, he's my teammate, but more so he was my friend because yeah. we spent weeks, months together, uh, hunt over a hundred missions of the kind of missions I explained to you earlier, over a hundred of those missions. He saved my life on three occasions specifically in kinetic combat. He saved the lives of, of multiple service members. Uh, I just had him recognized before U.S. Congress, which is the first Afghan to be recognized for a mission that he and I did. Where he, you know, I, I, I claim that I claim that he is responsible for saving the lives of four uh, of our uh, elite Navy SEALs hmm. uh, and prevented probably a lot of civilian casualties uh, and, and protected a, the the uh, secrecy of a very important operation. And we've got him recognized before Congress for that. Wow. Uh, it was a mission that I was tasked with leading, but the truth is uh, I led the mission, but I would have not have been able to pull it off if it wasn't for his, uh, you know, uh, just yeah. wit, his wit and his, and his courage. Yeah. And uh, we were able to, to rescue these four, four Navy SEALs. Um, and so uh, he's an incredible human being. I say he saved my life three times, but he probably saved my life every day. Like, don't, don't walk there. Don't eat that. Don't talk to the person. If you talk right now, they're going to kill us. Yeah. Uh, so shut up. Like he, he, he kept me alive every day. He, he let me be successful in my job, uh, which being successful in my job meant my unit being successful to capture, kill the worst bad guys on the battlefield, which meant America's here, Americans here at home and, and free people around the world were safer because of his actions. Yeah. Uh, he's an incredible human being. And when I wasn't out operating in those mountains of Afghanistan or across the border in Pakistan with him, I didn't go back to base and he, and he went home. I went to his home, his wife, Hatra, cooked our first warm meal out of coming out of, we'd, we'd spend, you know, weeks or months sleeping on the ground in, in these ice cold mountains. And the first warm meal was cooked by his wife, Hatra. When his wow. oldest son, Mashud and Mashuda's daughter were born, uh, I held them as babies. So wow. he's like family to me. Yeah. And so when this withdrawal happened, a lot of things I was not happy about, some that I had control of, some that I didn't. Uh, but the one thing I did have control of was the fact that I was not gonna allow my friend, Aziz, his wife and his six kids to die and, and be be targeted and killed specifically for what he did for me and, and my family in this country. So so you're, you're telling us that when President Biden ordered the withdrawal from Afghanistan, we saw those images of, of Afghanis, locals at least, running after the airplanes, some of them clinging onto the wheels to their death. Um, and we left millions of dollars worth of equipment there. 
uh, we left billions. <laughs> billions, okay, billions. We we left we left people there as well, like people that we had left, served we left our American, country. We left we left thousands of Americans there. Hmm. Uh, undebatable, by the way. Uh, I know people will try to argue with me, but but it's un- undebatable. Well, thousands of Americans there. Now the right. hearings have confirmed what I've been saying that we left thousands of Americans there. Uh, we left 80,000 Afghan allies like Aziz there, those who we promised that SIV, special immigrant visa, if they fulfilled their contract to us in a nine-month process, by the way, which Aziz had been in a process for six months, of six years, six years. Uh, and it's just a failed system. We left behind uh, a, a reported to be $80 billion in equipment, billion with a B. They, they, they've tried to reduce that number, but initially the number that went out was $80 billion in equipment. We forfeited Bagram Air Force Base, which is the most strategic place in the globe between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. Uh, and, uh, and, and by the way, we didn't inform our NATO allies who were occupying that base. We didn't inform the Afghan government that we spent 20 years putting in place. We didn't inform the Afghan National Army. We only informed the Taliban, our enemy of 20 years. And, and you might ask why we did all that in the way we did it. Well, the White House and the mainstream media would have told you that we were doing it because we were stuck in this 20-year war, this endless war, and we have to get out of it because America's sons and daughters are dying. And that is a lie that is said enough to where people, actually Americans, started to believe that. And the truth is we're not in a 20-year war. We're not endless war. That war was over in, in, in 2011, the initial war on terrorism, when we, when we killed, uh, killed Osama bin Laden was over. However, we stayed there to help rebuild the Afghan National Army. And about 2018, when President Trump dropped that mobe, that mother of all bombs, from that point on, there was no more U.S. service members being killed. The U.S. military is not in kinetic combat with the Taliban. We we're in a support and advisory role with the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. And the entire international community were participating, and it was working. And we only had 2,500 troops there. And so for context, when we were getting pushed this we in this 20-year war, 2,500 troops in Afghanistan with the entire international community is is, is participating is, is, a, is a win for America. It's a win for the world. It's a win for national security. I can name 10 places right now that we have 2,500 yeah. troops that people don't know about because it's not, it's not politicized. Yeah. Uh, and, and in contrast to that, we have 80,000 troops still in Japan since World War II. Yeah. We have, we have 40,000 troops still in Germany since World yeah. War II. We have 35,000 troops in South Korea since the Korean war, keeping that 38th parallel safe. So the North Koreans don't cross over and start another Korean war. Like having 2,500 troops or military contingencies around the world doesn't keep the U S in endless wars. It prevents the U.S. from being in war by creating stability in the world. That's the position and the strength that America has. And and by the way, I'm not saying anything that the White House doesn't know. They know this. Well, okay. <laughs> this isn't this was, isn't like I'm, I, I get it better than them. They know this. Was, was, so was it was that decision stupidity or sedition? Sedition. Uh, they're again. They know this. They're not stupid. They're, all the. Joint chiefs advised against the withdrawal. The intelligence leader, uh, community leaders, which advised against the withdrawal. There was what's called a dissent cable that was sent from the diplomats on the ground. Uh, all the diplomats on the ground, the ambassadors, leaders on the ground in Afghanistan, that sent to Secretary Blinken and in, 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 uh, the State Department to the White House that said, if if we withdraw, the Kabul will collapse, and we have Americans here, we have our equipment here, we cannot withdraw. That that cable has been hidden last month. That, that it was subpoenaed by the House Foreign Intelligence Committee, a foreign, mm. the House Foreign Affairs Committee. They didn't want to release it. They had to actually threaten to hold the state uh, secretary Blinken in contempt, which would have been the first time in history that a secretary of state would have been held in contempt. They allowed a few members to read it, and it confirmed everything we said, that the diplomats on the ground, by the way, Biden's diplomats on the ground, even advised against this. The only person that, that was standing alone in that decision 
was the president of the United States. Against all advice, he chose to, to withdraw in the way he did from Afghanistan. And if you really, you can't, I can't assess motive. So I can't say what his motive was, but I can say this, any rational person that takes off their political lenses and looks at this, will see that the only person that people that benefited from this was Iran, was the Pakistan ISI, which is their intelligence agency, mm -hmm. and China, mainly China. Taliban as well, but Taliban's are small players in this, by the way. They're they're not legitimate. They're, yeah, they've been devastated. Russia, does Russia benefit at all? Uh, mm. Somewhat from maybe some having access to my military technology and things like that. Yeah. But but really, it's like a, it's an economic gain. There's a military strategy gain by having that position in Iran and China has the position of Bagram Air Force Base now, and we don't. Uh, there's a big military strategic gain there, but economically, China wanted the mineral rights to the Hindu Kush mountains, which is worth... Uh, the lithium there is worth trillions of dollars. Oh wow! Trillion with with a T, and and of course the U.S. is buying lithium from them and pushing this electric car thing. Uh, so so trillions of dollars in lithium. Uh, I was called a conspiracy when I first said this, and in July was when I said in July of, of August twenty one that this was a, a, a the motivation behind it. However, in in August thirty first when the military left, the next week China had the mineral rights to the Hindu Kush mountains of those trillions of dollars, and Seriously? they have those mineral rights now. In addition, follow the money. China wanted has always wanted the sanctioned oil that we that the sanctioned oil in Iran, but that the access to move that sanctioned oil from Iran to China was blockaded by the U.S. military in Afghanistan. So the U.S. military had to go, and uh, and they wanted this for a long time. They just didn't have a president in the White House that's willing to do it, and uh, and and now they do. And uh, so there was a lot of economic gain from China to to see this happen, and a lot of pressure, I believe, from China on the president. To, to get the U.S. military out of Afghanistan hastily. I, I suspect, and you can call me what you want, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there wasn't a little uh, financial motive for the Scranton Mafia, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, I do. The big, the, the, uh, the big guy needs to Yes, the big guy. All right, now I want to get back to the book, Saving Aziz. So we've got, we've got the, uh, some people call the fall of Afghanistan, which I think is a misnomer. We've got the abandonment of Afghanistan, We've got the abandonment of our assets. Now, I, they also told me, I remember this distinctly multiple times, the only people left behind in Afghanistan are those who wanted to be there. Did Aziz, your friend and translator, want to be there at that time? No. Uh, so first of all, uh, when people knew this was coming, when President Biden came in office, the applications for SIVs for those who served with us ramped up because they knew President I could go all the way back to 2000. I'll take, a, take you back to 2004. I sat in Aziz's house and watched the election between President Bush and President Kerry. I was in that in the yeah. in the house, Senator. <laughs> shoulder to shoulder, people. What, oh, oh yeah, yeah, Senator. He Kerry, never made it to president. <laughs> yeah, candidate Kerry. And, and and I was there, and they were so tuned in this television. It's like being a, watching a, a Super Bowl party. Mm -hmm. They they were so inter. And, and when President Bush won, there was now you know I'm not a big fan of President Bush anymore. I was at the time. Uh, but but when he won, they were so excited, and the reason they were excited was they were so scared that they would that Senator Kerry would win and he would pull out the the troops from Afghanistan. They were so terrified of that. Mm. And so when when the same thing, and I, I witnessed that in the home of the election well, in Afghanistan. And so that's what happened when when President Biden won the White House, or won is a loose term, right. but took the White House. Uh, they they were they were just as scared. They were like, he's going to pull out. And, uh, and they're, they're going to leave us all behind. And that's exactly what happened. So they started applying for their SIV visas and trying to get out. But the State Department were not granting these visas. 
and uh, and they used COVID to shut down the embassy, mm-hmm. uh, so they couldn't go to the embassy and apply. Yep. And then you know you heard things as the withdrawal was happening. You heard things like, "Hey, if Americans are still there, all they have to do is go to the airport." We they know that. better. Look, they gave the NEO operation, non-combatant evacuation operation, away from the military to the State Department. The State Department forbid the, uh, going outside the wire to evacuate civilians. That allowed the Taliban to control the outer perimeter. So now, if some some twenty year old, uh, I'm thinking of pastor right here, like this, is a, we have blue, you know, blue passports. I'm holding up right here. Yep. Some twenty year old uh, girl who's like a humanitarian worker or school teacher or or a missionary hmm. wants to go to that airport. She has to go to that Taliban checkpoint and show her blue passport to a Taliban fighter who's literally executing people in the street and cutting people's body parts off. You think does she want to go? to the airport yeah. or is she too afraid to go? And that's the white house knew this and they were get, still getting on the news and telling people, Hey, these people don't want to leave baloney. Mm. Uh, and, and it's atrocious that they would say that and, and leave Americans behind. And then they, they lied and said there was a hundred Americans. First they said there's 16,000 Americans, which they didn't even know who knows how many, because you don't register with the state department. And then they said, we've got 6,000 out. And then they said, we have a hundred left. Now I'm not that great at math, but I'm better than that. Yeah. Uh, that's 10,000, not, not a hundred. And the truth is it doesn't matter if there was a hundred or, or a thousand or 10,000, we don't leave one American behind yeah. ever. Yeah. ever. And, uh, and, and we, we did even after the president promised not to. And, uh, and we left Americans behind, not so, to mention allies, yeah. 20 million little girls to be sexually enslaved. Uh, because of the result of our, our evacuation. Yeah, yeah, and we have some people that work with the ministry, uh, some people that we support who actually got the girls' soccer team, the one that feeds the FIFA league, out. Yeah, uh, the FIFA, the FIFA team. Yeah, the FIFA. Yeah. Um, so where was Aziz at this time? Aziz was in Kabul. Uh, him, his wife, and six kids, and you know we made the decision to put a team together of twelve. I put a team together of twelve former special operations veterans who are you know very. People very trustworthy, and they, they believed in the mission, and and all very experienced guys, uh, you know, guys Green Berets and Fort Street Fort Marines, and guys from CIA Ground Branch, uh, which is our paramilitary unit. Very experienced guys, and as we're putting the team together, one of them brought to the light that there was a uh, thirty five hundred women uh, and little uh, uh, thirty five hundred orphans actually that was abandoned there as well, and we kind of decided at that point, or I've really really been got burned in our heart to say that. We're capable. We're willing. Uh, God's burden our heart. Let's lean forward, be obedient to that, and help as many Americans, interpreters, their families, women, children. Let's help as many people as we can. And honestly, we've gotten a lot of credit for what we did. But the truth is, all we really did well was made a decision to be obedient because we're not capable, smart enough, financially equipped enough to pull off what we did. Uh, uh, God performed a miracle that allowed us to uh, – Rescue Aziz, his wife and six kids, and, and seventeen thousand other other people. Seven. And, uh, wait, wait, seventeen thousand. Yeah, and, and and that's why I say it's it's uh, you know it's it's very difficult. Like, and the only way I know how to clear it, it was a divine thing that I got to be a part of. Uh, well, every every possible door that could have been open in the right sequence that it could have been open was open to make this possible. Well, and, uh, and, and those are it, things I don't have control over. That, that's what makes the book fascinating, by the way. But you had no, this was not a military operation? It was not a military operation. We did, however, uh, in one of those miracles was we got permission from the Joint Chiefs to get, for us as veterans to go on the Kabul airport, to leave the airport, go outside the wire and conduct eva- uh, evacuations and rescue operations, which they wouldn't even allow the military to do. 
so anybody that's been around the military knows that that request should have been an absolute no, uh, but <laughs> we, we were permitted to do it. Uh, and they, they even uh, allowed us to submit our manifest to make sure we're getting the right people out and vetted those manifests. And then we had to, to bring people from one country to another without visas, which is human trafficking, right? You have to have permission. Uh, you could do that in Laredo, Texas, but you can't do that anywhere else <laughs> right, in the world. I know, right. uh, so in the real world, you need rules. And so we, we had a relationship with the Royal Family of the United Arab Emirates. We reached out to them, uh, presented the, uh, our case, and they granted us permission to fly people there, open their humanitarian center to us with doctors and and uh, healthcare and food and, and lodging and all the resources you would need to bring uh, a mass evacuation to. They offered us to use a C-17 plane. And then Glenn Beck, who you heard, uh-huh. called me up uh, on the third day, by the way. It's all like three days. Glenn Beck called me up and said, Chad, I went on the radio to raise some, a few thousand dollars. I just wanted to help. And he's like, it's been three days and I've already raised $21 million. I think overall he raised like over $40 million. And uh, he's like, what do I do? And I'm like... <laughs> start chartering planes. And so he, uh, he got a guy named Rui Atala who works for Mercury One, his ministry, and they started chartering planes. And, and Mercury One did an incredible job partnering with Mighty Oaks. We started to save our allies uh, campaign, which ultimately became an organization itself and uh, worked at, we called it Task Force 68 from the verse six, Isaiah 68. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we just, we, we spent 10 days at the airport, got 12,000 people out. Uh, no one stopped. Like, if you stop for five minutes, someone was dying. My buddy C Spray lost 37 pounds in, in 10 days. Like, he would not even stop to drink a bottle of water. Jeez. And uh, and then the Abigail blew up. 13 of our service members died. Uh, again, thousands of Americans were still there. The military was forced to leave. We chose to stay. We led a coalition of a lot of other great organizations, by the way, that we were working with. You know, we we were part of that. Those the FILA. There's so many people were part of getting those FILA girls yeah. out. The soccer yeah. team. Yeah. That was one of our one of our planes that Glenn. They actually flew one of the planes that that Mercury One paid for, oh, okay. and we started coordinating that. But a lot of people, a lot of people were involved. So that yeah. part, we got we worked together in a coalition, got about another five thousand people out. Yeah, that, and and uh, and then we myself and Dennis Price went into Tajikistan, and uh, did about ninety miles of, of border reconnaissance over ten days. The two of us, uh, and we we swam across the Panjshir River every night into Afghanistan to build routes out for all the women and women and little girls that were in the Panjshir Valley trying to come out. But it was just yeah. too dangerous for them to cross, and yeah. so we had to scout out routes and, and provide forwarding reps to, to our government agencies that wanted that information but wasn't allowed to collect it to NGOs and to the our commandos that were trying to get their women and children out and well, we spent 10 days that and it, it was yeah i mean crazy, it, there's, there's, there's so much there i mean because the reality is that that a lot of them had actually destroyed their passports because if they were caught uh of course, yeah they would be trafficked and things like that uh, i'm i'm I, we could go on forever I, again you get the book and there's a movie in the works, uh, and so yeah. I would love to see this on the big screen. But I have to ask, where is Aziz now? And then all those people that you got out, you mentioned Tajikistan. Where where'd they go? Well, seventeen thousand people all went to all went to Abu Dhabi at first uh, to the humanitarian center there. Uh, the ones that we got across that river, the women and children, you know, that's in addition to 70,000. We have no idea, you know, how Tajikistan handled that. We didn't, most of them, we didn't cross them. We just gave them routes so they could cross into Tajikistan. Mm-hmm. The 17,000 out, out of Abu Dhabi, some came to the United States, some went to South America, a lot went to Canada. I mean, it was our job to get them out of the country, not, you know, we're not in the State Department. A lot right, of people actually right. gave us a hard time, like, you get all these people out and bring them to America. I'm like, we can't, I'm not in the State Department. I don't have the power to bring them to America. We just get them to safety. And then the State Department was, was responsible for that. Uh, Aziz did come to America. Aziz uh, is here in Texas with me. He lives uh, lives in my neighborhood. He works with me at Mighty Oaks Foundation. Uh, he's uh, 
He's uh, helping other uh, part of his job, Mighty Oaks Foundation, is to help provide care for uh, the SIVs and guys interpreters like him who are coming home, and now they have to deal with some of the things they they lost and some of their some of their hardships. Mm. And so he's working here with us. His wife and six kids are here. They've adapted to America uh, incredibly. They're you know just such amazing amazing people. Wow. Go to church with us. Hmm. Take him do all the first things. They uh, you know I took him first pizza first. First uh, hamburger, first ice cream, first movie theater, and took a easy skydiving. We were right before we went jumping. He's like, "You took me out of Afghanistan to kill me in Texas skydiving." <laughs> and, uh, well, we just had so many, so much, such a great time. I, I, I trust you're a good enough Texan that you took him for his first uh, Tex Mex. Oh yeah, he's he's uh, Lupe Tortilla. By the way, if you're in Texas, uh, yeah. lots of great Tex Mex. Lupe Tortilla is the the place to go. Uh, and so yeah, right away Lupe Tortilla. He, he they love brisket. They they love oh, brisket. Yeah. And every time they go eat somewhere, they you know because in Afghanistan you go and you get a little piece of meat with something. And uh, you know he's he said one one year they they hadn't had meat the whole year and they got a chicken for their whole family and it was like put it in a soup and you get a little shred of chicken. So everywhere he goes, he's like they're so generous here. <laughs> <laughs> especially texas food they're so generous it. yeah I, you know a lot of great countries around the world i i still think this is the best country and it just pains me to see some of the uh leadership doing the things that look like they're blatantly trying to destroy the company they're, country they're trying to destroy it but it's still the greatest country in the world and and uh and I, I what you know one thing that gives me hope is the people um the people or uh, and the patriots and the god-fearing pe- good people in america are still the majority yeah. It, it, we just the, the only question is, do we have control of our election system? If we have control of our election system, we're in good shape because I trust the people are going to make the right call at and, the end. And, and uh, if we're not, we need some people to step up and, and take right. control like you did. You know? You, know, you know, one of the encouraging things about, about, you know, being part of this evacuation was it was it was a true example of when the governments of the world won't do the right thing, including our own right. and government won't do the right thing. Good people will rise up and do the right thing. And, and by the way, I think it's important to say, people that stepped up to help us uh, were not all people that have the same worldview as me. And that was a little encouraging. I have people, I have about a half million followers on my Instagram and, and most of them probably don't follow me because they like me. They follow me because they want to, you know, they don't like me. And they, and I had people writing me like, hey, you're an idiot. You're a conservative nutbag or whatever. They call me and, you know, you're, you know, Jesus freak, whatever they call me. But they're like, I don't like you, but I love what you're doing. Where can I support? And I was like, man, that's that's super encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> right. we, had a, we had a Jewish right. organization want to pay for two flights, which was one flight was eight hundred thousand, one flight was seven hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So there was a one point five million dollar donation, and they and they got the information. They called me back, and this, the guy said, "Hey, we can't make the donation because you're a Christian organization, and we're a Jewish organization." And I was like, "Okay, but you do realize we're rescuing Muslims, right?" And, uh, <laughs> they, and, uh, and they made the donation, and we uh, and you know we had a Jewish organization give money to Mighty Oaks as a Christian organization. To rescue Muslims and show God's love to people, and uh, and just you know people came together to do the right thing, and and that you know in the in the where this country is right now, where this world is, that should be encouraging to everyone. It, it certainly was to me. It is, and the the one thing I won't abide by are Christians that uh, criticize you for doing that. No, I mean, uh, look, I, I'll I'll just say this right here: the the people that helped in Afghanistan, the people that helped those Muslim people. We're primarily from the Christian community. Good. Most of the people that were there helping from the Christian community. Good. And when they got here to America, the mosque, the mosque, the local mosque did not step up to help them. Hmm. The local mosques did not help them get in the homes, did not bring them groceries, cook them meals, throw them welcome parties and ticker tape parades. It was the churches in America that did. Nice. And 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 in many of these people who were raised in in 
and forced to be Muslim, but living in a country like Afghanistan, uh, had the free will now to choose, you know, uh, how they want to live out their faith. And, uh, you know, and most Muslims know about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is, is taught to Muslims. Uh, he, it, they, they pray to Jesus every day. They don't, uh, they don't recognize the identity of Jesus as, right. a, as a, right. a, as a divine. Uh, they recognize him as, well, I actually do a recognize prophet. him as divine. They don't recognize him as the son of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and now they get to explore for themselves. And, uh, and man, what better way to let them explore than to just show them God's love. And I can tell you that I've seen many Muslims that have came through others, uh, through, uh, this evacuation of Afghanistan, surrender their lives to Christ, uh, get baptized in own free will and, and worshiping God and leading their families in God. And, uh, and that would not have happened in, in one soul's worth all of that to yeah. me. So, you know, and that's, that's the way it should be. That's the way we should be as Christians. I mean, it says, it even says love our enemies. So if you think of somebody as your enemy, guess what God wants you to do? Love them. How do we love them? Not just by saying, well, you know, I love them. I just don't want to be around them or, you know, you get out and you do something about it. Love in action. So Chad. Honestly, like, look, I, 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 I know we could go on and on, but as a Christian, I don't care what somebody believes. Uh, I, I don't care if a little nine-year-old girl is, is, is twisted to believe in Satan. Uh, if she's getting drug off to be raped by a 50-year-old man, I'm going to go help her. Yeah. And uh, and then and then we're going to show her love and, and show her the truth, and uh, and that's what we were dealing with in Afghanistan. Little twenty million women and little girls are being sectioned enslaved forever. Nine year old girls are being drugged off to be raped uh, for the rest of their life. Uh, if, if you're a Christian, you can't get your heart behind and compassion behind that. Then you should really, you know, uh, reconcile. You should reconcile. get saved is what you should get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> all right, man, Chad, I, I just appreciate your time and your story is fascinating obviously but the work you do uh, mighty oaks foundation programs.org on the screen right there mighty oaks programs.org you can find out more about that uh, and if you want to get behind an organization that's doing some really cool stuff i'm sure the the millions of dollars that were donated were used to uh, getting people out of afghanistan so they could use your ongoing support and uh, I, I just man I'm, you make me proud to be an American and a Christian, both at the same time. So you're hitting on both both cylinders, and that's a great thing. Thank you. Is there anything you want to add before I let you go? No, I just appreciate you. I appreciate people when they get the story out. This story isn't a you know a pat on the back for me. It's so many amazing people are involved, and uh, and these people need to be loved and cared for and prayed for every day. And and we need to, the truth to be out for this story because we can never allow something like this to happen in America again. All right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that takes good people stepping up. So uh, let that be the message this Independence Day. You want your freedom and free. People like Chad have put their lives out there to pay the price. Some have given their life to pay the price. We need to not uh, treat it so cheaply. And when I don't care where the threat comes from, whether it's halfway around the world or in our own backyard, we got to step up and, and face it. So, Chad, appreciate you. I want a screener when the movie comes out. I, I, yeah. I, I want to be on that list. Uh, it'll be a good one and, and again appreciate all that you do uh, in, your, in your time go check out the book Saving Aziz looks just like that you will be one of many it's on all the legitimate bestseller lists uh, you will enjoy it and come back hit share hit like hit follow subscribe see you again next time here on Life Today Live where do you live? Be true to what you said on paper.